Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras. Hello and welcome to Season 9 of Wisdom of Friends Show. I'm your host, Cal Aras, and today I'm thrilled and delighted to be introducing you to a highly successful, charismatic, and a dynamic leader and a good friend of mine, Anna Liata. Anna is the best-selling author of Unlocking Generational Codes. She's also a renowned speaker and a recognized expert on generational diversity and inclusion in leadership, sales, and customer service. She has shared generational insights from the stage and in the workplace for 25 plus years. And Anna has also worked with hundreds of clients, including Amazon, Microsoft, PGA, NBA, Merrill Lynch, and the list goes on. In this episode, friends, uh, Anna and I discuss a host variety of topics, including how to manage and inspire in a multi-generational marketplace and some actionable insights to lead and mentor across generations, and what the new rule of engagement is going to be in the post-pandemic COVID-19 situation. So this is a fascinating conversation with a lot of golden nuggets and a value add. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, let's welcome the one and only Anna Liata. So good afternoon, Anna. Welcome to season nine of the Wisdom of Friendship. I'm super excited that you took the time to be on this program. Let me start off by saying how we met. Uh, we first uh, got introduced at the National Speakers Association event here in Seattle at in Mercer Island a couple of years ago. I heard you speak uh, on uh, on a very, very important topic that most companies are today uh, dealing with, that is generational dynamics. And I know that having you on the show and that would be a treat for my audience. So again, take thank you for taking the time and welcome to the show. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So Anna, one of the ways we kick off our show is by asking our guests a simple yet profound question. And that is, uh, what's your favorite quotation or philosophy that, uh, uh, that you live by and how have you applied it to your life? Mm. So my favorite philosophy is a Buddhist philosophy. And the interdependence of life is the core driving force that everyone and everything is connected. And how I engage with any aspect of the world is how I engage with every aspect of the world. So making sure that I'm living my life conscious of how this ripple impacts others. And it can be as simple as parking my car making sure that I leave enough room on both sides of my car that the next person that comes out to get in their car doesn't have to like squeeze or feels like I've impinged upon their space. Um, And just kind of making sure that when I'm doing anything, I'm thinking about what's the ripple of this on the person that I may never meet, but they'll will ripple on their family and that will ripple on their community and that will ripple out into the world. So that interdependence, the interconnectedness of life. I like it. It's really, so what I'm hearing is interdependent and interconnected and the ripple effect of our every action. It's basically, uh, you know, uh, every action has an equal and an opposite reaction as uh, Newton's laws. Uh, But it seems like you are being very thoughtful is what I'm hearing. Uh, And that's, that's really awesome. And just for the benefit of the audience, Anna has studied generational dynamics for over 25 plus years. She's also a award-winning professional speaker and current NSA president, a business consultant, and also an author of the book on generational codes. Uh, so one of the questions I have for you, Anna, and this is uh, very fascinating for me personally as well, is now, you grew up in a household of six generations, uh, and you were one of amongst 19 children. Is that correct? That is correct. And we should just go ahead and insert, I was raised Catholic, but I live as a Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, so tell us about what was it like growing up and uh, who were your influences growing up and how did that shape your philosophy? Mm. So my influences growing up, well, I'd have to say my dad was a big influence. Uh, he was a GI Gen. He would have turned 100 this year. And he uh, was a major influence on my life in many ways, but one that I live a lot is that he said, honey, if you're ever going to participate in something, make sure you come from service, get involved, contribute. And so I really did. Over the course of my life, I've been involved in a member of many associations and nonprofits and charities and boards. In fact, I've served on the board of 51 of them and this presidency of the National Speakers Association is my 21st presidency. So I really come from service and community. And that was something he lived. He was one of those people that everyone loved him because he always was looking out for how could he help them achieve what they wanted to achieve. And so that's been a core of my life too. No, that's so great. And uh, and I have obviously a follow-up question to that. It seems like service is an important uh, value for you personally, and uh, that has definitely uh, shaped the arc of your career. And as you said, you've been with you know, 21 different uh, opportunities as a president with different organizations. You've been part of nonprofits and charities. And now you're uh, the NSA president as well as uh, an award-winning speaker. Uh, so let, the question that usually comes up from our audiences it's, is that how do people go about finding that, you know, that sweet spot about their, what are their competencies and what are their passions and purpose? It seems like you found yours. So what's your take on that? Is it something that happens naturally that uh, people just are born with certain things and they realize it or is it just a guessing game along the way? So how how did that unfold for you? What's your story uh, in that mm-hmm. regard? So there's the modality and then there's the passion. And sometimes they arise together and sometimes they are completely separate. So I've always loved sharing through the spoken word. I've always loved the in the moment thinking. That's something that's a passion for me. The moment I have to sit down and write, it's a different thing. I, I struggle. I, I I want to be more brilliant on paper and, and yet it takes me a long time to get there. But in the moment of speaking with someone and sharing in front of a group, I find it to be a really great modality. So I always wanted to be in the space of presenting, speaking, leading in that kind of way. But remembering my passion around generational dynamics was something that actually took a while to get back to. When I was in college, in my undergraduate, I had forgot that I wrote my senior honors thesis on generational dynamics. Now, that sounds funny because it's what I do full time now. But there were a lot of years in between when I was being more general about leadership and communication and, and, you know, people hadn't been as quite interested in it. But when I looked back at where it really got started, it actually started when I was about 16 years old. And, um, my dad and I had been in a tearful conversation, tearful on my side, stern on his side. And I never forgot it uh, because I was a neurotic, you know, 16-year-old Gen Xer who uh, was saying to my dad, like, why can't you just say you love me? Well, GI Gens, that's not how they lived their life, right? They were not all smushy and gushy and, you know, lovey-dovey and all that kind of stuff. Their whole feedback system was like, if I'm not yelling, you're not in trouble. Right. That was, that was the baseline <laughs> for that. And so I remember this conversation where my dad said to me, I put a roof over your head. I put clothing on your back and food on your table. That is, I love you. And I was like, wow. And, and, and I just remember the stern up as his face and the snot running down my, you know, nose and the face. And, and then I was an undergrad and, um, this is three years later and I took this class on organizational development and they showed a movie one day. And usually when a teacher shows a movie, they're like, you know, I didn't want to do anything today. So I'll show this movie, but this movie changed my life because the core premise from a 
researcher called Morris Massey is what you are now is where you were when. And I was sitting there listening to it and thinking, okay, what you are now is where you went when. And his kind of device was to say something happens when you're 10 years old that fundamentally changes the way you see the world. And I thought, what happened to my dad when he was 10 years old? Not what happened to me, but what happened to my dad? Interesting. And I realized at 10 years old, my dad was living in the Great Depression and he was living in an orphanage. And anyone at that time that had family at all got pushed out of the orphanage. The orphanage said, you know, we can't take care of you. You got to go back to your family. And he discovered at 10 years old that he had aunts and uncles and grandparents that were alive that hadn't put a roof over his head hadn't put food on his table, had not clothed him. And all of a sudden, it changed everything about how I saw my dad and how I understood my dad. And that began that whole journey of what if we understood the formative imprints of each generation? What we know from knowledge studies now is that about age seven, our brains start to make logic. If this, then that. And Over the course of 8 to 18, those formative years, we're watching the world around us. We're watching the leaders. We're watching the icons. And when there's an event and it's paired with an emotion, it creates an imprint. We're in the middle of a massive set of imprints right now with the coronavirus and with the pandemic being a global pandemic. So talk about interdependence. Talk about how we as global citizens engage with each other. So there I am, 19 years old, completely re-understanding and reframing and re-filtering many interactions with my dad. And it completely shifted the intimacy that he and I would share as friends for the next 20, 30, 40 years that we had together. Not quite 40, but <laughs> uh, we had 20 more years together. Let's yes, 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 yes. I don't want people doing the mental math and getting the wrong thing. Um, I'm not that old. But um, but it was it was profound. It was a profound moment. And it would take years before the modality of keynote speeches and consulting and executive coaching of leaders would show up. But the journey and the the passion was started there. And then when I was uh, starting to do professional speaking and speaking more broadly on leadership, I did this exercise where I went through every year of my life and I made a one sheet per year and I made a mind map. In the middle, I put the name, the year and then around it, I put branches off into what was I passionate about that year? Who were the people that were in my life? What were the kind of conversations that we had? Where did I spend my time? What did I find the most joy in? And that's how I rediscovered this body of work. Because I was like, that's right. And my, as my senior honors thesis, I write a whole thesis on women in the workplace and generational dynamics. And I was like, I forgot So it was kind of like I needed to go out and learn some more things and then circle back to it so I could add some seasoning and context of the time. I thank you for sharing and I really like that because I think what you uh, just shared is so important and profound because it seems like spoken word is definitely one aspect of modality but for you it was really about uh, communication and connection and you had already uh, through college tried out different you know, disciplines and topics related to leadership and communication. But it really, the defining moment, if you will, came when you watched that movie in your organizational development class. And that and that question that you asked, what happened, not for you, but for your dad when he was 10 years old. And that unfolded this whole other paradigm of, uh, you know, the lens that he was uh, seeing the world and the, the interactions you were having with him. And that just cause a breakthrough in your uh, friendship and your intimacy with your dad and no that's that's so well, and it also it also was you know remember you said 19 kids so as i began to speak with my other siblings and reframe some of dad's actions and choices given that generational code it allowed them to have a different access to a relationship with dad so me was the first but then as i began to do that and then 
you know, their relationship to him changed and our whole family changed as a function of having more space and grace for each other. And so it became this access point started, of course, with my understanding. But then the more I helped other people, the more I saw people get to love and be productive and be more receptive to each other. I like that. And it's, uh, would you say then that one action of yours caused a ripple effect in your family in a positive way that created love and affinity amongst all the 19 kids and the rest of the family, right? Absolutely. <clears throat> no, that's so great. Uh, and a follow-up question to that. And in your experience, having done so many keynotes and having worked with so many people and consulting, do you see a pattern, and in your research as well, that do you see this pattern that people have this paradigm shift either in a positive or in a different way let's not call it negative because i don't believe that there is any negative to it it's how you contextualize and how do you reframe it but do you think people usually uh at the age of 10 that's that that's when they kind of experience something like that or is it uh and the second question is do everyone go through that or is it just uh random do you think so as I said, with Massey, it was a hook, right? It wasn't just the age of 10. Although it is interesting how many people will be like, I remember something happened. At it, right? But it was, it's really knowledge studies expands out to say our, our brain starts to be able to make logic at about age seven. So it's really those formative years of eight to 18. You could go all the way up to 25 when our brains are developing and making that logic. And really when they're watching the events and the leaders and the icons and the emotions that are connected with those events and mm. the imprints that are made that what I call create an algorithm or a generational code. And you don't necessarily know it, but that algorithm or that code is running in the background for the rest of your life, informing your choices and your reactions. I'll give you another example of it. A few years ago, my bonus mom, now I call her my bonus mom because my mom passed when I was 10. And she had pancreatic cancer. But she told my dad, you know, I don't expect you to live the rest of your life alone. There's a perfectly wonderful widow right down the road. So she basically set my mom, my bonus mom and my dad up. And they fell in love a couple of years later and celebrated 39 years of marriage. And she brought to us many, uh, six children from her late husband. And a couple of years ago, my bonus mom was 90. And we were making a lasagna for one of our family potlucks because you can imagine there's going to be a lot of kids, <laughs> grandkids. My brothers and sisters have 56 children wow. and their kids have like 65 <laughs> children. So it's a massive family, right? So we always do potlucks. And so we're making this lasagna and we cover mm -hmm. it in tinfoil, take it off to the potluck. And at the end of the night, I'm looking, I'm looking over at my bonus mom as I wash down the now empty lasagna plate. And what do you think she, at 90 years old, was doing with the tinfoil that had been covering the lasagna? I don't know, saving for some the next round of uh, event, or I don't know. <laughs> That's right. She was saving it. She was smoothing wow. out wrinkles. She was operating from her generational code. Because when you look at her formative experiences of 8 to 18, you see... World War II, the Great Depression. Depression that's right, so yeah. those imprints create an algorithm that we reference the rest of our life. And that's the thing that gives people access to themselves is when they understand, oh, it's not personal. It's generational. There are things that influence what I think is valuable, what I think is right, wrong, what I think is a right, what I think is a privilege, what I think the currencies of life are can be shaped by those generational codes, those imprints. And so when I am working with customers, when I'm working with executives, whether it's on how they lead or how they frame their message or uh, their product for people, they don't know it, but they are coming from a different generational code about it. And so helping them see their own blind spot or their own code gives them access to themselves. Sometimes I was I was I gave a speech uh, earlier this year and this gentleman uh, this was in a manufacturing industry and he walked up to me and I don't know why I was signing books and I looked up at him and he was probably late Gen Xer and I said, 
at what point did it creep you out how well I knew you? And he goes, oh my God, how? I can't believe you said that. I don't, I'd never said that to anybody before. I just looked up at this guy and he's like, I was sitting in my chair thinking, she knows me more than I know me. And that's a common experience for Gen Xers because Gen Xers are oftentimes squeezed between that massive, you know, 80 million baby boomers and 76 million millennials. And there's only 44 million Gen Xers. So they're kind of in the Delta and they think that nobody's seen them. Nobody knows them. Nobody gets them. And then I walk through and I basically describe their insides and they're thinking, how did you know that? But it's part of that formative experience coding that gets put in place. And we we just don't even realize that it shapes and influences things. No, that's so great. And I want to come back to that uh, a little later on if you have any if you have any techniques on, you know, how can people identify their own generation code and what paradigm and what kind of a imprint that they are living into and how's that shaping their lives. If you wouldn't want to share maybe down the road, that would be great. But uh one of the questions I have for you also is like, you know, now you're a professional, really one of the top-notch uh, world-class experts in this field of generational codes, and you're the president of National Speakers Association. And so when you look back at your life, Anna, is there, you know, we all have these uh, breakthrough success moments in our career, in our life, and obviously the one that you mentioned about your life in that organizational development class. But as far as your career, professional career is concerned, have you noticed or when you look back, do you see like a moment that totally like shifted everything for you in the sense what I mean by that is life was never the same again moment? You know what I mean? Hmm. That's interesting. You know, there's a, there's a few moments that I'm trying to think if there was like one moment that's interesting. I don't know that there's just one right off the top of my head where I'm like, life is never the same after that. I'd say that one of the about ooh, 15 years ago, I was speaking at an event and it was the largest audience I'd ever spoken to. It was 2000 people. And it was in the LA Staples Audit, yeah, uh, Convention Center. And um, I got there and I noticed the room was set up for 8,000. And I said to the meeting planner, I, I thought this was for 2,000. He said, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, John Maxwell is speaking right after you. And I said, oh, okay. He said, but the people will come in after you speak. So I'm standing behind the curtain waiting to go on stage and the auditorium is filling up. And the next thing I know, there are 8,000 people <laughs> out there. And I was, I mean, I was already excited about 2,000. I was already nervous about that. And now 8,000 people are out there. And it's a really different phenomenon to speak to 8,000 because you have to wait differently. You have to hold, you have to pace differently and that kind of thing. And there's multiple cameras and multiple screens and everything like that. And I remember standing backstage and thinking, this is what you want, right? Like, go for it. And I um, I go out on stage and it was exhilarating. I mean, I was just, it was it was one of the best speeches I'd ever given. And I came off stage and I, I was floating. Like, I was just <laughs> floating off stage. And I remember John Maxwell backstage said, who are you, right? Like, he, he'd said hello to me before, but he was like, I, I, how do I not know you at <laughs> you know, this moment? And um, I, I, people were like, you know, getting photos and selfies with me, and that had never <laughs> happened before. And I was just like, you know, levitating. And I, it was down in LA, and at the time, my best friend lived in LA. So I walked out of there, and it was so perfect because I got in the car. My best friend was waiting outside, um, in the car and we went to dinner that night and I got to share this extraordinary experience with my best friend Paul and it was just I still can see the restaurant I can still taste the food and the wine and the walk it's one of those clarity moments where I'm like this is what I was meant to do well, wow, that's a fascinating story uh, so what would you say is the difference speaking to like a 
group of 2,000 people versus an 8,000 crowd out there is the, I mean, you kind of briefly touched on it as far as pacing is concerned and, you know, but what are some of the subtleties that you notice that as a professional speaker, and I'm sure a lot of us uh, audience listening to this are professional speakers too, what have you noticed is the difference that you need to be aware of when you're speaking to a larger audience in thousands versus a small group of say 500 to 1,000? Well, one thing is how to work the cameras. So when you're speaking to a group that large, you have to look directly at the iMag or the big magnification camera. Because if you're looking at the people in front of you, the way that most of the room sees you is the top of your hair right? Like the part of your hair, because you're looking at people that you can see because the lights are so intense in your eyes, right? So you can't actually see anyone past maybe the first row or so, maybe not even the first row. And so you're looking out into the dark as if you're talking to your best friend. So you need to make sure because what you want when people see all those different screens is they want to see you looking at them because they're not looking at you on stage. You're a microscopic, teeny tiny dot. What they're looking at is you on screen. Mm. And so you have to get really comfortable looking straight at the camera and off to the side a little bit. You don't have to only look there, but you have to be looking at them so that they feel like you're talking to them. That's the first thing. The second thing is that there are three waves of response. So you tell a joke or you do a punchline and there's a a laughter that happens immediately. That's kind of the first couple rows. And then it catches the next couple of rows and then it catches the third couple of rows. So there's this ripple effect. And if you do not hold for the evolution of the laugh, you will step on it and you will teach the audience, stop laughing. Basically, you will shut them down. You'll say, I'm not, we're not doing this together. So you have to make sure that you're doing it with them. And that is a, you know, if you've got yourself all timed to a certain pace and then you don't hold for the laugh, you basically can suppress the whole room. And now you're having a really different experience because you're like, all the oxygen sucked out of this room while I'm trying to, you know, make them laugh. So you have to make sure that you have um, looked at the amount of content. Then the other thing is know your tech team's name. So I had planned out my speech and I had gone up to the tech team. And to this day, I remember the guy, Kevin, and I gave him my slides and my backup and everything like that. And I'd asked him his name and um, we ran the show and I had three embedded videos and I learned run the entire video because all I did at that time, this is 15 years ago, all I did was run the first 10 seconds. And I'm like, great, the video played. Well, the most important video of the whole presentation that really anchored a point was corrupt and it mm. only ran 10 seconds and then it died. And it's never happened since and it had never happened before. So I, you know, this whole punctuation point of the presentation and it dies. And here was the important thing that I could, with a smile in my voice, say, Kevin, would you mind trying that video again? Now, it's really important because the intimacy in the room of 8,000 people that I didn't say, hey, tech team or hey, you know, whomever. But I could say, Kevin, would you mind trying that video again? And then it still didn't work. And then I said to the you know crowd, I was like, what would have happened? And then that you smile and you are okay with it. If you are okay with anything that happens, your audience will be okay with anything that happens. And so in this situation, it was a little technical glitch. But I remember early on in my career, I was out in Wisconsin doing a speech and at this point, there was a longer video that I was going to run, and it was back in the VHS days. And I do the setup, and then I moved over to to push play. This is a much lower budget situation. Push play on the VHS tape, and right where I had been standing, the chandelier over my head came crashing wow. down stage. And glass went splintering, and I got a little cut on my leg, but the mm. lights were down. And the video was playing. 
So I went out in the hallway. The video was a little bit longer. I got the janitor. I asked them, would they come in and sweep up the glass and remove the debris? And um, they came in. They, they, the, the video was high enough that they could do it without, you know. And they cleaned it up, uh, gave me a Band-Aid for my leg, and the video, you know, completed. And I went back up on stage and finished the speech. And the audience saw that I was fine and they were fine. But if I had been like, oh, my goodness, oh, blah, 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 the audience would have panicked. The speech would have been over. But because I was fine and I did not, you know, f- make it their problem, we continued on and I got some of the highest ratings I'd ever received. <laughs> oh, that's so great. So uh, just to recap, so essentially uh, when you speak out to a larger audience, a few things to keep in mind is getting comfortable with uh, looking at the camera and also allowing for the punchlines and the laughter uh, notes to have the ripple effect across the room and uh, – Otherwise, you kill the laugh right there. And then knowing your the tech team's name, so you personalize it so you can have that one-on-one conversations. And it's not just because, uh, but it's more about a personal bonding that you create as a team as you go up on stage. And finally, the audience responds to your body language and how you handle situations and being uh, comfortable with yourself. If you're okay, the world is okay kind of a thing. So... Did I, did I capture you right over there? Yeah, that's right. You know, I'd add one other thing. Yeah. When you're in a room that size, you have to use your body to own the whole space. Mm. So you, your movements and, and the way that you do it has to be integrated with your – you can't just use your hands – you have to use your arms and your shoulders and your breadth and your chest to make the motion because it has to be something that claims the room. And that doesn't mean you can't, you know, at some moment sit down on a chair and have a deeper whispered conversation, but that's not going to claim the space for the entire time. So you really have to be able to use your body as well as your voice, as well as your eyes to communicate to that size of room. So everyone feels like they're there with you. No, that's so great. So sounds like that LA stage, that Staples Center stage right before uh, uh, John Maxwell stepped on stage, that was that critical tangential point, if you will, that totally reshaped or got you in touch with your own calling. And so I'm seeing an arc here that... uh, you know, some of the things that it's the passion about what you really feel deeply about pursuing the passion. And I also notice your thoughtfulness that, you know, the ripple effect of every action that you take has a ripple effect. And so really being conscious of that. And then the other thing I'm also noticing is that, you know, you're just your command and your dedication to excellence over the years. Um, now, that's, that's really great. Now, one of the things I want to Step, take a step back down the memory lane here, Anna, and I'm looking at some of the fun facts about Anna, and this just <laughs> <laughs> and this just caught my attention. So one of the things I'm noticing I saw here is that you studied theater in London and lived in Japan for three months. Is that correct? That's right. So tell us, what was that experience like doing theater in London, and what made you choose uh, theater and go to London? Was that somewhere in between while you were kind of a professional speaker or was that during the college days or how did that work out? So from the time I was five, all I wanted to be was an actress. I wanted to go to New York and Broadway and do musical theaters and that's what I wanted to do. And my GI generation dad did not think that that was a really viable uh, plan. And so I ended up going to college in electrical engineering on a full ride from the Air Force. Wow. And that was, it was just (laughs) the only way I could pay for college. I needed scholarships. Um, I'd actually originally had a full ride to Notre Dame, but my dad convinced me to go to the University of Portland, which was a sister school. And um, it turned out to be a good thing because when I got there, I auditioned my very first week of college for a play. There was a production being put on. It was a children's theater show. And even though I was in engineering and the Air Force and, you know, uh, working uh, 
work study jobs to pay for the extras, I got the lead in this show. And so that started this whole other odyssey because I so wanted to be in theater. And so I would do theater on the side and then rush back at night and study my engineering, which I was so not suited for. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> my brain did not work that way. I mean, I eked by, um, you know, with my grades, but whew, that was so painful. And at the end of that year, the Air Force pulled out of that school. They they closed their detachment. And so I was released from my engineering uh, and my scholarship duties and one of the theater professors helped me network with some other folks and cobble together enough scholarship to stay and go into uh, communications and theater and business. And then I got into television production. So during undergrad, I did four years of television production and um, a theater degree. And while I did that, two different summers, I went to London and studied theater with 30 theater students. <laughs> oh my God, it was a dream come true. We would go over and we would see 30 shows in eight weeks. And we would go out at night and we would go to the pubs afterwards and we'd dissect everything and we'd just talk, 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 <laughs> theater. It was like my happy place. Some of the happiest days of my life was theater in London. And um, then I... I did a couple of professional shows and Gilbert and Sullivan cast. And then after college, I went on and I I realized this was an interesting thing. When I was doing those professional shows, if there was no one in the audience that I knew, I didn't enjoy it as much because I enjoyed afterwards hearing the experience that people had. And if there was no one to talk to about the experience, it wasn't as enjoyable. And that's one of the things about being a professional speaker. My favorite joy is when people come up to me and they say, I so get my parents or my children make more sense or, oh my gosh, that person at work that's been driving me nuts. I get it now. It's not personal. It's generational. And so it's been a really lovely hybrid of creating a body of thought leadership but delivering it with all of the production and all of the theatrical, you know, uh, expertise and television, you know, nuances that allow people to see the drama of their life in living color and then share it after my presentation. No, that's so great, Donna. This is fascinating, and and no wonder that uh, you know it's uh, we have a common friend here, Bill Stainton, who's got a similar background in theater and. Uh, television production, and I see why he thinks so highly of you as well. Uh, so the other question I have for you is: uh, Now you were also crowned Junior Miss Colfax. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> That's right. That was a uh, scholarship program for young women. Uh, but yes, I, I, I it was Miss Colfax Junior Miss, and uh, and that was that was it was actually a really great experience competing at the state level, and and uh, I had gone to Japan at that point. Um, in my junior year of high school, I went to Japan on a scholarship to study over there. And when I came back and did Junior Miss, my talent was a Japanese fan dance that I had learned oh, wow. on that uh, <laughs> That's awesome. program. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so fascinating. That's so cool. So, l- let me ask you this. So, who were your mentors growing up? Uh, were there any particular people that you kind of like looked up to that you uh, wanted to emulate? And if so, why? Anybody comes to mind? Anybody you want to give a shout out to? Or Oh, there is a woman, Lee Myers, who um, was in a mentor that, that I met through a friend who just did a wonderful job of sitting down and listening to a neurotic 16-year-old girl and just having her feel seen and heard and appreciated. And she was, um, I only knew her for a year when I was 16. And I tried to find her years later and and thank her again. But she was one of those first people that just said, I see you. You're, you're, you've got a sparkle. You've got potential. And then I would say Tom Laswell. He was the acting uh, 
director in college that helped me find scholarships and helped me figure out how to keep college together and how to stay there. And then Rita Lambert, she was the financial aid director. I'll never forget every single uh, semester Rita would sit down with me and she would help me find jobs and scholarships and grants. And um, she made it possible for me to stay in college after the Air Force uh, left. And it it was like six months ago. It was couldn't sleep during the night for whatever reason, full moon or whatnot. And I thought about Rita Lambert and I thought I should write her a letter and let her know what that meant to me. So then I got online and I looked her up Come to find out, Rita had been a nun, and she had, I know, and I was reading this story about her. I couldn't believe I found it. She was like, she had become a legend in the financial aid community, because she'd been a nun, and she'd worked like out in the Wild West, and, and she had done all these innovative things, and then... At like 35 years old, she'd gone into financial planning and she, or finan- um, uh, being an advisor for not financial planning, but for um, universities, figuring out financial aid. That's what I mean to say. And uh, I had met her like a couple years into her career at financial aid and that she became a legend and being somebody that was just an advocate for students having access. And at that time, there weren't a lot of people like that. So she became one of those people that. She was an angel and she made a lot possible. So, yeah, those are some people that those early years were really important. One of my favorite ways to spread the message of a mission here at Wisdom of Friends is through speaking. Over the last two years, I've delivered keynotes and workshops at professional associations, small and large companies, on topics related to engineering happiness, how to boost productivity, employee engagement, and workforce stability for bottom line results, and the science of happiness and the art of fulfillment. So if you think I'll be a fit for your upcoming event and want to learn more, visit the speaking link at wisdomoffriends.net and get in touch. Again, it's the speaking link at wisdomoffriends.net. So, and here's another hypothetical question for you, Anna. It's a... Uh, if you could go back in time, let's say, and talk to your young self, right, like in when you were 19 and 18, what advice would you give her? I think the key thing that I would tell her is stop letting other people Steal your sparkle. Mm. I think that um, in the time that I grew up as a as a Gen Xer, being a wickedly smart woman was not okay. So I spent a lot of time helping other people look really good and getting the credit for things. And hoping that someday they turned around and said, you know, she's actually helping me. Mm. And I spent a lot of time navigating that. Now, it was of the times, too. You didn't get to say or speak up or that kind of thing. But um, I kept thinking, if I was just nice enough to them, that at some point they would acknowledge the work that I had done behind the scenes to make them look good. And I waited way too long before I stepped out. So I, I would give, I would, uh, I would coach her. It's okay to stand up for yourself. It's okay to stand out. You do not have to wait for someone else to say, you've got it. Now that's such a great message. Now, do you recall the moment when you decided for yourself that you're going to step out and uh, not follow the, the way of the society, if you will, and, was there a moment for you or it just kind of happened over the years and you just... Well, uh, there, there was. I took a continuing education course um, called the Landmark Forum when I was 23 years old. Mm. And the training of that curriculum was very, very, very uh, empowering. And I remember looking at the person that was leading that course and saying, that's me. 
I want to be that. And one of the things I attribute, and I went on to teach courses for that company for the next eight years. That's great. On on self-expression, on leadership. And it was a wonderful training ground for me. And what I loved is that people there wanted you to be a leader. That was the first time in my life that people said, no, it Mm. kicks ass if you're an awesome leader. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's so great. And actually, I've I've led programs for Landmark as well, been involved with them for the last, uh, yeah, quite a, almost a decade now, or more than a decade. Now, this is great. Uh, So I want to shift gears here, Anna, and uh, talk about a little bit about uh, generational codes and uh, one of the things that you're well known for in the world is how you combine sociology communication uh, business psychology as well as you know demographics to help companies uh, you know reach their peak performance and so my first question to you in that regard is what is generational friction and why is it important in today's day and age to uh, resolve it So generational friction comes from when two people with different generational codes both think the way they see the world is right and the way others see it is wrong. And having the compassion for each other's experience and the context that they were shaped in and seeing how that context and contrast to your experience is just as valid, just as important. It's not It's not one person's right and the other person's wrong. You don't have to agree, but you have to seek to understand what shaped their perspective on that and how can I have some space and grace for it creates the opportunity of connection. Disregarding it creates friction. And that's where we start to have mischief. That's where we start to have people... Um, pulling away from each other and blaming each other and criticizing each other. And that basically impacts the employee engagement within the company and that has loss of productivity and performance and that has a direct impact negatively on the bottom line results, correct? Absolutely. I don't want to play with people that I think don't respect me. So if you say, oh, you're such an entitled insert generation here or you're such an old insert generation here or you don't get me you don't care about me um or you're just an idiot because you're you know too young too old to this to that it starts to create a place where people don't want to be and if you are a leader and you are saying i need to you know attract the best and the brightest they're going to want to go somewhere where you're willing to understand their lived experience their currencies of stability and compassion and significance and happiness and generationally you're willing to understand those different generational currencies and what it means to them no that's such a great point now in your research have you kind of like can you think of some common generational uh, you know what ticks them and what ticks them off for, let's say, the baby boomers or the Gen Xs and the millennials, like at the top of your head, like something that, you know, just so that people can start noticing this. And they may not, you know, we may not be able to get into all of it, but a little taste of what's the contrast or, you know, how do these generations think differently? Is there an example you could give us? Sure. So when you think about it in the workplace, our traditionalist generational code about being in the workplace and how they saw themselves is that they wanted to be workers. They got on with the company. It was a two-way relationship between them and the company. They were loyal to the company and the company was loyal to them. So they worked 30 years for a company and a hard day's work was its own reward. You got a paycheck and that was the end. Our baby boomers came along and their generational code about the workplace is they didn't want to just be a worker. They saw themselves as employees. You get on with a company. You're still loyal because it's strategic to be loyal. 80 million peers competing for every job. You work up the ladder. You figure out the politics. You figure out how to play the game. And as a now white collar or blue collar and no longer a blue collar employee, you were a valuable asset to the organization. And we know that their generational code around being an employee is there because you ask a baby boomer, what do you do? And they say, I work for, and they actually give you the name of the company. Like it's a brand that they identify their, their core of themselves is based on, 
I work for. Then come Gen Xers. They don't just see themselves as workers or employees. They see themselves as free agents. When you think about it, in their formative experiences of 8 to 18, their baby boomer parents who had bled company colors, were the first generation of workaholics who, you know, worked those 80-hour work weeks like it was a badge of honor, came home in the 80s and they had a little slip of paper one night at the dinner table and it was pink. And all of a sudden that two-way loyalty was broken. Mm. It was no longer that the company watched out for you. It was now up to you to watch out for yourself. So Gen Xers, hey, they sign a contract, they work the contract, but they know if something cataclysmic happens, they need to pick up their skill set. They need to be ready to move. So that free agency is part of how they see themselves in the world. They're always nimbly watching out for what do I need to do to stay safe? All of their formative experiences from being latchkey kids to um, having, you know, 75% of their parents get divorced by their you know time they were 16. That makes them free agents in every aspect of their life. Then along come the millennials. And they see themselves as talent. This is not their final destination. Their boomer parents said, do what you love and the money will follow. And so they began to do what they loved. And they tried this and tried that and sampled this and sampled that. But they don't feel like they are indebted to any one organization or any one individual. So they are talent. You ask them at Gen Xer, what do you do? And they say, I work in. They give you the industry. That's their coding of free agency, mm-hmm. right? I work in finance. I work in, in technology. You ask a millennial, what do you do? And they say, I'm passionate about. And they begin to tell you what their gifts and their talents and their dreams and their desires and all of that, which is that whole mix of talent. And then you come to our most recent generation, the Gen Zs, or as I call them, the globals, because they're our first generation that truly think of themselves as global citizens. They think very deeply about world issues and how they are part of it. Just think about the young um, globals that you see, Greta, and how she started a whole conversation about global climate Climate change change, and responsibility and that kind of thing. And the young people from Parkland and how they started a conversation about gun control. So they They don't just see themselves as talent. They see themselves as influencers. They start challenges on social media. They start movements on social media. And that influencer is how they bring themselves into the workplace. So when you look at formative experiences and how that starts to show up, it has a thread in every aspect of life that we don't even realize we come from it, but it's right there. Yeah, the imprint that everyone carries with them and that kind of shapes how they interact in the workplace and in their life. And this is really fascinating. Uh, another example that comes to mind is Malala Yusuf. Uh, another, exactly. Yeah, that's another influencer there. So so this brings up another dynamic too, don't you think, that uh, leading and mentoring some of these different generational dynamics in the workplace would now needs to be you know, more artful. Do you have any suggestions or recommendations about leading and uh, mentoring some of these, uh, you know, cross-generational employees? Absolutely. You just said it in a word. It really is a mentoring two-way co-created experience now. So when we say leading, it sounds like someone's ahead and someone's behind. The leader, the person in front In mentoring, we really come to a co-created reality. So one of the things that is important is that our millennials grew up with coaches, with advisors, with their parents being BFFs, their best friends. And so when the millennials look to the people that are the leader, they're looking for somebody that will create a conversation about their future with them that will have a dialogue, not a diatribe about what's next. And so there are things that every generation dreamed of, like work-life balance. Our baby boomers dreamed of it and they think they invented it. Gen Xers desired it, but they had 80 million peers, you know, of the baby boomers that they just kind of left it in desire. And now our millennials demand it. And the globals will believe they just deserve it. But what they have in common is that they all want to have meaning in their work. And in fact, 
that's one of the things that is more important now than ever is there is a demand for meaning. Pre-COVID, it was there and coming out of this People will need it at a whole nother level. So that's a new space that my work is, is the demand for meaning is something that every leader has to understand. How do I support my team, my peers to understand their own demand for meaning and how we realize that? Because at the core, we all want to be part of a cause that's worth giving our full being to. I call it the because. So when you are talking to an employee, talking to a peer, talking to a leader, what is their because that fulfills that demand for meaning? What is the thing that is so driving their sense of self that they can find access to it on your team, inside your organization, inside this company? Because if they can't find it here, they will listen to the person that says, you know what, I've got another option. Usually they're called a recruiter. Yeah, unfortunately. No, that's, that, this is such a fascinating topic, and I could talk to you about this for hours or, at the time. But in the interest of time, I want to kind of jump on to the next section here, and this is the rapid-fire round. And in this section, Anna, I'm going to ask you a bunch of fun questions. So the first question I have for you is, uh, are you ready? <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So the first question is, what's, the fa- what's your favorite place to travel, and what about this place you value so much? Sicily. Mm. I love Sicily. It's um, old world, it's family, and it's quiet. It's slow, it's rich, it's textured. Mm. That's great. That's one uh, country I haven't been to in Europe. I mean, there are others, but Italy's on my list. Uh, if you could be successful in another profession, which would you choose? Movie making. I would I would be a movie maker. I would direct and produce. That's that's uh, great. Is that something that uh, you're planning on going getting back to at some point in your career and professional life? Uh, going back I've to acting. A, I've had a screenplay knocking around inside my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. Why am I not surprised? Um, no, this is great. Now the next question is: Do you believe in magic? Absolutely. Okay. And if you could have witnessed one event in history, what would that be, Anna? Witnessed or prevented? <laughs> no, <laughs> witnessed. Um, if I could have witnessed one event in history, mm, I think I would have to say, uh, that's a tough one. Well, the first thing that came to mind is... Um, the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Because when you think about all the things that had to come together for that group of people in that room to come to a moment where they put the country first over their own self-interests, because it wasn't always going to be that way. There were so many moments when that could have gone the wrong way, when that could have been a whole different reality. So, yeah, I think I'd have to say that's probably a good one to have been present. No, it's, that's great. Yeah, I spent uh, a few weeks ago, I spent almost a weekend reading the entire Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights and everything, and it was just fascinating. Yeah. Um, the next question is, uh, what's the best thing that happened to you today? The best thing that happened today Mm. I was just on a call right before this with some young people from Singapore, and we were getting ready for a speech that I'm going to give virtually there, and they solved a problem that I had not been able to figure out in one of the softwares to present virtually, and I had tried, and I had asked people, and one of the young uh, folks, while I was talking about something else, was researching it, and she uh, got back on, and she's like, I've got the answer. <laughs> I kissed her. I would be COVID-safe kissing virtually. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, what gives you hope uh, right now? What's giving you hope right now in the current situation that we are in? And I would say the thing that's giving me hope is the creativity that people are coming up with 
to love each other, the ways that people are finding to connect, the fact that people are um, doing little things like, you know, the the scenes we're seeing in Italy where they're playing music on their balconies balconies, to each other and (laughs) where they're, you know, they're doing cheers long distance or uh, John Krasinski doing the prom for, you know, uh, high school seniors and his good news or um, when the cast of Hamilton sang the opening number to the nine-year-old girl who didn't get a go, like, those moments of people reaching out, Lady Gaga, you know, coordinating the conference, just seeing how people are rising um, and reaching out because it goes back to that interdependence at the beginning of the conversation. We are all connected. And the more that people recognize their humanity and recognize that my humanity is yours, that 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 you are my life. Um, I think that gives me hope for the world. That's beautiful. And then now, if you could have any message of your choice on a billboard, Anna, what would that be? Well, as I sit here at my desk, I see one word on my desk, and it's love. Mm. And I would would put that out there. That's awesome. And I've just got final three questions for you, Anna, and then I will wrap it up here shortly. Uh, So the first question is, what is your current personal or business passion project that you're working on? And what are you looking forward to in the next six months to a year from now? Well, the passion project I'm working on right now is recalibrating the way I deliver my business because as you and I, you know, mostly get in front of large audiences and we don't know when that will come back. I'm looking for how do I make this crisis an opportunity? How do I say, okay, so there's this way that I was delivering that I loved, but is there something that I wouldn't have known I loved. And it's kind of funny because getting back into television production, now I'm learning all these softwares and taking time with these new, you know, hardwares to rediscover producing in a whole new way. So it's not just about the thought leadership. It's the thought leadership and the creativity and how I visually represent it. So yeah, the passion right now is, is there something that could make it even better than it was? Because it was pretty great. That's great. Awesome. What are three things you're grateful for in life today? Oh, I am grateful for friends and family of choice. I call it my first circle. People that no matter what, you can go to them and say, I've had a great day, I've had a hard day, I've had a, you know, um, really rough uh, interaction, and they will drop whatever and listen and love no matter what. Um, I'm grateful for puppies. I uh, love, at the end of the day, I will watch videos of dogs and cats too, and babies. Those are the three to the watch. And, and my favorite is to watch dogs and babies interact. I just, that's just, you know, one of those things I just love. And, um, and I'm grateful for walks. I love getting outside and just walking in the forest, walking in a park and just breathing deeply. Now it's a bonus if I can take my dog with me, but I just love walking and breathing. Mm, that's awesome. So I want to take uh, a moment, a couple of moments here, Anna, to acknowledge you. Um, this has been really an awesome conversation. I mean, you just this has been fascinating just to hear your journey and your story. But what really uh, stands out for me is just your profound commitment to humanity and oneness. And, you know, you see the interconnectedness with all the living beings on this planet. And that comes from your Buddhist philosophy there. And and also your uh, commitment to passion and excellence and to becoming the best version of yourself. And which is really, you know, what you have accomplished and what you're up to in life is you're definitely, I mean, you're a role model for all of us here in the community. So thank you for being who you are and doing what you do. And I, I'm just looking forward to all the major, even more amazing uh, accomplishments uh, for, uh, coming from you. So can't wait. So oh, thank you. 
No, this is great. So one final question, Anna, and this is how we wrap up all our interviews. And this is, why do you think people should listen to the wisdom of friends? Intimacy. Intimacy gives us access into not only the heart of another, but into the secrets of ourself. And I think Wisdom of Friends has an intimacy that allows people to know themselves and in knowing themselves, love themselves. Oh, this is great. Thank you for that. That's awesome. And I uh, appreciate our conversation, Anna, here. And for those of us listening, with that, we'll wrap it up. And if you like what you heard, please share. Don't be shy. Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Carla Rass. If you enjoyed today's show, head over to wisdomoffriends.net to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic bonus content. We hope you'll pass along our web address, wisdomoffriends.net, to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out our archive section on the website for previous episodes and subscribe on iTunes, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This has been a Seven Symphonies production Join us next time for another edition of The Wisdom of Friends.